folks. You're very welcome to our service this morning. Glad to see that the weather has improved a little bit. And I hope if you're a visitor here this morning that you won't rush off after the service because we'd really like you to come downstairs and have some tea and coffee and give us the chance to get to know you a bit better. Just as we begin our service, I just want to read a few verses from Psalm 18. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. So let's come and sing now to the praise of him who turns our darkness into light in the words of beautiful Saviour. Let's come before God now in prayer. Let's pray. Father, this morning the sunlight woke us from the darkness of night to a new dawn. And we thank you for the light of your risen sun, which brightens our spirits and warms our hearts as we gather for worship today. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we are glad in it. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world, whose perfect love drives away all fear. There is no darkness at all in you. So with confidence, we place our trust in you. You are the anchor that holds us firmly to hope and to fullness of life in God's kingdom. Father, for all the ways you've sought to guide us, we thank you. The kindness of others, the love of friends and family, the support of teachers and mentors, your words in the Bible that show us the way to go, the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that while your love for us has never faltered, it is a different story when we remember how we have not always trusted in you. You have remembered us, we have forgotten you. You have loved us, and we have denied you. You have given everything, and we have withheld parts of our soul. Father, we know that our mistrust of you has affected our sisters and brothers, friends and neighbors, and all our actions. Yet you have so made us that we are children of the light, and to the light we are drawn. Father, draw us near to you and assure us afresh of your promise of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lead us deeper into Christ that we may become like him so that all who meet us might see the light of Christ within us. Wherever we are, may the hope, love, and life that Jesus offers 
be evident to all as we witness to him. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 17. Luke 17 and reading from verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because of what he did, because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And now if the boys and girls would like to come up to the front, Lorraine is going to speak to you. We had a special day on Friday. Does anybody know what that was? What was it, Matthew? Valentine's Day. And what kinds of things happen on Valentine's Day? I'm not saying you don't have to tell us any confessions of things that you did. Just what <laughs> other people did. What kinds of things do they do? 
give chocolates. What else? Flowers. Flowers. Yeah. Anything made out of paper? Cards. Cards. Okay. And why do people give chocolates and flowers and cards? What's that for? To show they care about people. Yeah. So Valentine's Day is all about love, right? And I was just thinking about this because God kind of writes, sends Valentine's cards to us in the Bible. So here are some of them. So this one here is from the Old Testament. And God says, I have loved you with a love that lasts forever. So even from when you were a teeny tiny baby and all through your life, God will love you. That's a pretty amazing promise. And then this one is from the New Testament, from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world so much that he gave his only son, so that anyone who believes in him will not die, but will live forever. So not only does God love us forever, but he shows it by giving his own son for us. And here's another verse that says something like that, another Valentine. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that's from Galatians chapter 2. So Jesus said, I love people so much that I'm going to give myself for them and die in their place. So it's not only that God has a warm, fuzzy feeling about us, but he shows his love. Just like if you give... um, flowers or chocolates or a card or do something nice for someone you're showing that you love them this is the amazing way that Jesus shows how much he loves us because he gave himself for us and this valentine card Paul says I am certain that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and that's in Romans chapter 8 and he says lots of bad things can happen to us in life but none of them can separate us from God. So sometimes if things go wrong, we think, oh, where's God? But he still loves us and he's still looking after us in all of those things. And here's another Valentine card from God. And um, Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. I pray that you may be able to understand how very wide and long, show me what wide and long looks like. Okay and high and deep Jesus' love is, and that you may know his love in your own life. Now, I've changed these verses a little bit to make it easier to tell what's going on. And if we see the next slide, we'll see something else that looks wide and long and high and deep, the cross. And that's how Jesus shows us how much he loves us. And then... Because we know God's love, that changes what we do as well. We love because God first loved us. So that means we love God because we know how much he loved us. But it also means that we love each other because we know what it means to be loved, even though we are not perfect. But God still loves us anyway. And that means that we love each other with the same love that God gives us. That's from 1 John. And so this is a picture of a church. So in the church, we love each other and we love people um, all around. And so also in 1 John, we're reminded of that. Dear friends, let us love one another for love 
comes from God. So you can remember whatever Valentine cards other people might have given or got, God gives us the best Valentine's cards of all because he shows us how much he loves us. And now we're going to sing a song. And now you guys can head off to Sunday Special and K2. Can we just have a look at the church news and diary while the kids are going? And just for your information, if you're here with uh, small children, there is a crash downstairs if you need to use it. And there'll be people there who will uh, look after your child for you. And if you want to stay with your child, you can still listen to the sermon downstairs. Um, next Sunday... Our minister, Sam, will be back again, and he's going to be looking at Joshua chapter 7. If there's something that you would like prayer for, then after the service, if you'd like to come up to the little table here beside the organ, a couple of people will be there, and they'll be very happy to pray with you confidentially. So if you really feel burdened by something, please do come up and use this service. The SALT Project will meet again on the 22nd of February from 7 to 9. So all secondary school-aged children are welcome to come along to that. And if you need any further information, just talk to Katie. The Living Well, uh, they're going to hold the next meeting on Saturday the 7th of March in Bray at Allen and Heathers. So if you're free on that day, please come along to that. It's for everybody retirement age or close to it. So come along and enjoy the fellowship there. As Steve Vaughan and Sean Mullen are doing their faith and work thing again, and that's on the 26th of February. And it's at half six in the morning. So you uh, are invited to leave your nice warm bed in that morning and come along and listen to Steve and Sean as they talk about the impact that our faith has in our working lives. And just in number seven there, there is another cinema outing organized to see a beautiful day in the neighborhood, which by all accounts is a very good film. And that's on Saturday the 22nd at 20 past two. So uh, speak to Barbara if you'd like to go along to that. I think that's pretty much it. We're going to sing again now to God's praise. We're going to sing Here I Am, Lord. It would be good to have Luke 17 just open in the Bible in front of you. 
Just to give a little bit of context to this passage, going right back to at least chapter 12, Jesus has been having a real go at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders of the people. They saw themselves as examples of how to live a godly life. But it's very clear that Jesus did not agree with their self-assessment. In fact, he makes it very clear that he thinks they are a stumbling block for the people. An example of how not to live a godly life because he's continually warning his followers not to be like the Pharisees. So I think we need to keep this in mind as we read our passage today. At first glance, it all seems a bit random, a collection of sayings and a story, but they are all connected around issues of character, faith, forgiveness, and humility. All issues that Jesus has been condemning the Pharisees for in the previous chapters. In Matthew 23, Jesus is particularly scathing about the Pharisees and their leading of the people. He refers to them there as blind guides, as whitewashed tombs, looking good on the outside, but on the inside full of corruption and filth. Jesus believes that the Pharisees' behavior is a constant source of stumbling for many. They're constant seeking after honor and status. They're chasing of wealth. Their disregard for the little ones has made them a stumbling block. So with that in mind, the first two verses of our passage today carry a very stern warning for anyone behaving in this way. We are told that it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone round their neck. And just in case the disciples would think that this warning only applies to the Pharisees, Jesus finishes his warning with a rather pointed, So watch yourselves. You see, Jesus knows just how easy it is for us to forget where we've come from and to start behaving just like the Pharisees. And Jesus is on a bit of a roll now because he continues in verse 3 with an even more shocking demand. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard enough time forgiving somebody once, never mind seven times in a day. And to make matters worse here, the number seven is a perfect number in the Bible. It's symbolic. It's used here to indicate that there's actually no limit to the number of times we're to forgive. 
the kingdom of God is characterized by extravagant forgiveness. And if we have received this level of forgiveness, then we're expected to hand it out too. It's all too much for the apostles. Lord, increase our faith, they cry to Jesus. And I'm sure we can all resonate with that. We live in a world so seemingly hostile to faith that our faith can feel very small, inadequate, irrelevant even. We feel as though we've lost our place to stand and our right to speak. We're very much against the spirit of the age. And that can be a very isolating place. We feel like we're hanging on by our fingernails. And these outrageous demands of Jesus are beyond us. Lord, increase our faith, the apostles say, and us with them. We think that if we were able to summon up a bit more faith, then we would find these demands of Jesus a bit easier. But would we? Is having more faith the solution to our problems? I think that is striking that it's the apostles who are saying this, not the crowds who follow Jesus around, nor even the disciples, but the inner circle, the ones who have been closest to Jesus, who have seen amazing things, people healed, food in the wilderness, demons cast out, storms stilled. If they feel that their faith is lacking, then what hope is there for any of us? It's a bit depressing. But from another perspective, it's anything but depressing. If the apostles feel that they lack faith, even though they've seen all these amazing deeds of power, then it's not surprising that we, 2,000 years down the track, struggle. Yes, ours are times which seem hostile to faith, or at least to our faith, the faith of the Christian church. But I suspect that it's never been an easy gig. Either the world hates us as it hated Jesus first, with all the problems that that brings, or else the world decides to get on board, which inevitably ends up co-opting the church for distinctly non-Christian ends. The apostles felt that they lacked faith, which is, in a way, permission for us to admit to our own lack of faith. Jesus' response is, as always, interesting, surprising, not what you would expect. He doesn't say something reassuring. Rather, he challenges them. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. 
Now, there's over 2 billion Christians in the world. If we were all exercising our faith in this way, that's a lot of mulberry trees flying about. would be an air traffic controller's worst nightmare. Not to mention the state the sea would be in. But there's something appealing about it, isn't there? It attracts us. Because we think if we could just see a miracle like that happening, then it would be easy to have faith, to feel confident. Just imagine talking about your faith with some of your friends in work. And they start giving you a hard time and rubbishing what you believe. And then you turn around and say to them, Do you see that mulberry tree over there? Watch this. Whee! Into the sea. That would shut them up, wouldn't it? Well, it would until you ran out of mulberry trees. The only thing wrong with that picture, though, is that it would be a world without faith. Because it would be a world of certainty. If we could silence every critic by sending a tree flying into the sea, then there would be no need for faith. Because faith is only possible when doubt is a serious option. As G.K. Chesterton said, to love means loving the unlovable. To forgive means pardoning the unpardonable. Faith means believing the unbelievable. Hope means hoping when everything seems hopeless. Faith is only possible when doubt is an option. Faith is only a virtue when it's easier to doubt. Now, as I haven't noticed any mulberry trees washing up on our beaches, I think it's safe to assume that God is not particularly interested in the sort of faith that miracles on demand would lead to. So if that's true, what is Jesus talking about here? If you have even a tiny amount of faith, Jesus says, you will be able to do remarkable things. The point Jesus is making here is a very simple one. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about what you do with it. If you have put your faith in God and are trusting only in him, then you are automatically included in the kingdom. Being a part of his kingdom means that you are called to, partic to participate in his mission to the world. Participating in his mission to the world means that how strong or weak you are is totally irrelevant because the power of God is available to you. God says, I will do the work, but you go. We've seen this in Joshua, haven't we? When the Israelites were crossing the Jordan, the waters didn't part until the priests stepped into the river. 
when they came to Jericho, the walls didn't fall down until they marched around it for seven days, blowing their trumpets. Even if our faith is as small as a mustard seed, it's enough to help us take that first step. Everybody that God calls in the Bible is shocked. They can't understand why God's called them because they know how weak and inadequate they really are. However, when they manage to exercise that tiny amount of faith and take that first step, God is able to do amazing things through them. As they engage in God's mission and see the amazing things he does, so their faith in God grows. You may not feel very capable. You may feel beaten down by life. You may feel powerless to make a difference. But Jesus calls you and tells you it's not about how much faith you think you have. It's what you do with it. You don't need much. And perhaps the way to grow your faith is to be part of the mission. It is action, after all, that Jesus is recommending here. So Jesus calls us to mission. Next, Jesus compares the apostles, and us of course, to slaves who when the master gets home are expected to wait on him rather than being rewarded by being served themselves. They are, after all, only slaves who are just doing what's expected of them. This at first sight seems a bit harsh. To start with, we're not very comfortable with the whole slavery thing. It's a gentle reminder of just how far removed we are from the culture of Jesus' time. But even if we get past the language, the feeling is a bit grim. It seems to paint a picture of God as a hard master, a bit too close to the way that the new atheists like to portray God. However, we know from other sayings of Jesus that he doesn't in any way see God as a hard master. For instance, we could contrast Luke chapter 12, verse 37, where he tells a similar story about a master and his slaves, where he says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. That seems to be exactly the opposite of our story here. And of course, I could suggest lots of similar examples where Jesus speaks of God's gracious love and acceptance of all of us. So I think that in no way is Jesus intending 
to describe God as ungracious here. So what is this point precisely? Well, I'm sure that everyone here over the age of 18 has applied for a job at some point. And so we're all familiar with how that works. You look at the job description, and if it's a job that you're interested in, you look at the qualifications needed to do the job. Then if you feel you could be a fit for the job, you look at the terms and the conditions to see if it's worth your while applying. The job that Jesus is offering is to be a follower of him, a disciple. The job description is to be a part of God's mission to the world. The qualifications needed are just the tiniest little mustard seed of faith, just enough to get you to take the first step. And now we get to the terms and conditions. What's the pay like? You want to be rewarded for this? You want thanked for doing your duty? Jesus has news for you. The work has to be its own reward. Want to apply? On the face of it, not so attractive. Take up your cross and follow me. The world will hate you as it hated me. And by the way, don't expect any reward or thanks for just doing your duty. What in the world is all this about? What is Jesus trying to do here? Is he trying to scare us off? No. Jesus is just trying to narrow it down to applicants who have the right motivation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you need to keep in mind Jesus' old enemies, the Pharisees. Jesus continually warns his followers not to be like the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't want followers like that. The problem with the Pharisees was that they had put their faith not in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in the law alone and in their ability to keep the law. In short, they had put their trust in their own self-righteousness. And therein lies the problem. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. Faith as small as a mustard seed is enough. As long as that faith is placed in Jesus. If your faith is in something or someone else, and often it's in ourselves, we tend to rely on that thing. For the Pharisees, they relied on the law too much and their self-righteousness at following the law. And when we get that way, we tend to think that God owes us something for our obedience. Just think about that for a minute. Do I at some level feel that 
because of my service to God, I'm entitled to special treatment by God or by other people? Do I do my stuff ostentatiously in order to win approval from others? Probably. At least some of the time. None of us do things with totally pure motives. We're a lot more complicated than that. We all do things with mixed motives. That's why a passage like this is so important. We see Jesus warning his followers not to be like the Pharisees because he believes that the Pharisees and their behavior is a constant source of stumbling or sin to some people. They set themselves up as examples of piety to the people. But their constant seeking after honor and status, their chasing of wealth, their disregard for the little ones, has made them a stumbling block. And we find it easy to condemn them without recognizing that our natural tendency is to do exactly the same thing. We need to read a passage like this because it helps us to examine ourselves. It helps us to see the plank in our own eye before we start looking down our noses at the Pharisees or anyone else for that matter. If we serve God from a sense of duty, we will end up in the same place as the Pharisees. If we are able to keep the rules, it leads to feelings of pride, self-righteousness, entitlement, while we look for ways to minimize our liability like the Pharisee who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So where does that leave us? What sort of motivation is needed if we are to lead a life that is joyful and fulfilling and pleasing to God? The answer is a very familiar one. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Philippians 2. We are to have the same motivation as Jesus. Love. Love. 
Only love has the power to motivate us to be humble rather than proud, to serve rather than to be self-seeking, to see others as better than ourselves. Only love has the power to motivate someone to lay down their life for the sake of others. There's a lot to take in here. But if you only take one thing away from this morning, I want it to to be Paul's short version of all of this from Galatians 5. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Everything else is secondary. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's the only thing the follower of Jesus needs because it's the key to a life that is joyful and fulfilling and pleasing to God to choose to live as God's child, the recipient of his gracious, all-embracing, all-forgiving, all-encompassing love for us, the love which we experience when we walk hand in hand with God and with each other through a life of both prayer and action, with one another and for one another. Not the slave of God, but Jesus tells us, God's friend. So let us step out as Jesus has commanded us and put our tiny amounts of faith to work, trusting in Jesus' promise that good, life-giving, Jesus-shaped things will happen. Let's pray. Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Lord, let that light shine into the dark corners of our hearts driving away the darkness of self-righteousness, self-seeking, and entitlement. Help us to live as loved children of God who love others in return, in imitation of you, as we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're going to continue to worship God now in our offering. We come to God now as we bring our prayers for others. Father, we thank you that you've loved the world so much that you sent Jesus to be its Savior, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. That love which surrounds us is richer than we can imagine and knows no end. Father, you've given us the freedom to make choices. We make choices all the time, from the TV channel we choose to watch or where we go for a walk, from little actions to big decisions about the future that affect others as well as ourselves. Father, we pray for all who make choices today, and especially for those 
whose choices make a difference to many lives. In particular, we think of those attempting to form a government here. Guide them so that the government that results will be one that serves the people, especially the weak and vulnerable, rather than serving the interests of the rich and powerful. Father, help us to make all of our choices in the light of your faithful love. Lord Jesus, you walk the paths, climb the hills, sail the lakes, and breathe the air of this good earth. You witnessed firsthand the ravages of disease and disability, and so we bring before you all those who are affected by the coronavirus. We pray for those who have contracted the virus and for all healthcare workers who are struggling to contain this epidemic. May you guide them in their efforts to find an effective vaccine that the spread of this deadly disease might be halted. And Father, we pray too for all those living in camps in Syria in freezing conditions or sleeping rough on the streets of Dublin in similar conditions. Father, please help all the aid organizations that are trying to alleviate the suffering. And we pray that a solution to the conflict in Syria and to the housing crisis in Ireland might be found so that peace might return to Syria and that justice might be done here in our land. And in a moment of quiet, to you, God of love, we bring those whom we know that you might bless them today. Some are happy and celebrating good news. Some are looking back with thanksgiving and forward with faith. And some are more faith fearful for what the future may bring. Some are struggling to come to terms with what they did not choose. Father, may your voice be heard in each situation, and may those who are in need be supported. Gracious God, for our church we pray, help us to venture out into the deep water, to look at the big picture, to take risks in faith, and to discover that you are by our side, that your kingdom may grow within us, and that many more may come to know the wonder of your love. For it's in Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning in the words of Shine, Jesus, Shine. We say the grace to each other. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.